ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. The U.S. Benchmark Series is a set of 10 ETFs that make it easier for advisors and investors to access the U.S. Treasury market. The U.S. Benchmark Series ETFs offers investors the following advantages over directly purchasing U.S. Treasury securities. Simplified access to 10 separate U.S. Treasury securities covering distinct points along the yield curve from 3 months to 30 years. Monthly dividends providing a more frequent and regular interest payment than holding the underlying securities. Automatic rolls that provide constant benchmark exposure without hassle or added expense. And at $50 per share, the ability to transact in fractions of traditional bond sizing. The U.S. Benchmark Series ETFs also provide enhanced tax efficiency, intraday liquidity, and the ability to take short positions and utilize options to express specific views on U.S. rates. U.S. Benchmark Series Treasury ETFs make it easy, cheap, and tax efficient to own and roll treasuries for clients. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Marcelo Sampaio, co-founder and CEO of Hashdex, who a couple of years ago, they launched the world's first crypto ETF. That's listed over on the Bermuda Stock Exchange. But here in the U.S., they actually launched the first 1933-act Bitcoin futures ETF. That's the Hashdex Bitcoin Futures ETF, ticker DeFi, a nice ticker symbol there. And what's interesting is that Hashdex has already publicly stated that if and when the SEC approves a uh, spot Bitcoin ETF, they can simply convert DeFi since it's already using the 33-act structure. They can just uh, switch from holding futures to owning spot. And so we are going to get into... All of that, and uh, also hear Marcelo's views on the crypto market and uh, why he thinks crypto belongs in a portfolio. I'll also be joined this week by one of my favorite guests, Christian Magoon, founder and CEO of Amplify ETFs. And it's funny, believe it or not, Christian has been appearing on this podcast for nearly as long as I've hosted it. He was on here all the way back in 2012, uh, well before Amplify even existed. So we're going to talk a little bit about his uh, ETF journey over the years, especially with Amplify, which launched in 2016. And then we'll also spotlight several of their ETFs, including an ETF that continues to just rake in new investor money, the uh, nearly $3 billion Amplify CWP Enhanced Dividend Income ETF, ticker DEVO. 
Now, to start this week, I have on the line with me Roxana Islam, Associate Director of Research at Vetify. And we're going to dive into the communication services sector and some of the uh, ETFs associated in this space. And I think you're going to find this pretty interesting. There is much more here than meets the eye. So uh, let's chat with Roxana now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. An area that I've been talking a lot about is Bitcoin versus gold. So right now in the environment that we're in, um, a lot of investors are concerned over those rising rates. Roxana, welcome back to the uh, podcast. Hey, Nate. Yeah, I'm happy to be back. Well, you know, it's uh, interesting. So I, I was looking at the performance of broad sector so far this year. The two best performing by far are communication services and technology. And I just use the uh, sector spider ETFs as proxies here. So if you look, the communication services select sector spider ETF, ticker XLC, that's up 23% this year. And then the Technology Select Sector Spider ETF, XLK, that's up about 21%. The only other sector that's even close is consumer discretionary, up around 16%. And then just for comparison, the S&P 500, at least as of this morning, was up about 9% this year. And so I thought, let's just uh, start higher level. We're obviously going to drill into some detail in communication uh, services. But why do you think those two sectors um, are doing so well. I mean, you, you look last year, it was all energy, right? This year, it's communication services and tech. Yeah, I mean, last year, these two sectors were in the bottom performers, and it's overall a bad year for anything remotely tech adjacent. Um, but this year, yes, yeah, it's, it's just been a completely different environment. Um, I think investors are more confident. We're sort of near the end of this interest rate hike cycle. So, you know, people are a little bit less afraid of those interest rates. And, you know, we just saw the FTX collapse a couple of months ago, but now Bitcoin's back up to 30000 So this has been a lot of crazy things happening um, in the economy, and we've seen investor interest return back to anything that has to do with growth and innovation and technology. And at the same time, we recently just had the banking crisis also. So that made the safety of some of these large-cap stocks, like the, the Meng stocks, very appealing. And for those that don't know, that's basically Meta, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google. And many people think of these as tech stocks, but Meta, Google, and Netflix are actually um, communication stocks, and Amazon is consumer discretionary. Apple is really the only true um, tech stock in that group. But besides that group of stock, you, stocks, you also have um, other large-cap tech like Microsoft and NVIDIA regaining interest. So that's also really been helping boost interest in both the uh, tech and communication sectors which from a high level are pretty closely aligned when you look at some of the overarching themes. Yeah, let's talk more about that. I mean, you mentioned those sectors being aligned, but you also talked about how some of, some of those stocks you mentioned, Meta, they get lumped in to the, uh, the, the tech category. Now, maybe a big part of that goes back to the fact that uh, a lot of these companies were actually in the tech sector prior to the uh, 2018 GIX reclassification. But I, I guess just for the layman here, how do you like to think about the differences between communication services and tech? Yeah, so that's that's one thing to consider is that the communication service sector wasn't even created until 2018. So, I mean, that's just really interesting because it doesn't even have five years of performance history. Um, there's also a lot of people that use those Meng stocks or 
um, QQQ as a tech proxy when they're investing. You know, there's definitely some lines that are blurred between the two because, you know, both are tech-based, both are Internet-based. Um, you can't have communication without technology nowadays. We're overall just trending towards a more digital future. But, you know, on a really high-level sector basis, um, I think many of these large tech companies like Apple or NVIDIA, they earn revenue through device sales. So, you know, for Apple, for instance, that's their PC sales, it's their tablet sales, it's their iPhone sales. And then you have these communication companies like Meta or Alphabet, and they earn based, they earn ad-based revenue. So they're basically less sensitive to inventory cycles, like what we heard about a week or two ago where, you know, we heard that PC sales were down um, almost 30% across the industry in the first quarter. So, for example, when you think about what happened with those PC sales, it had a lot to do with how the pandemic drove up PC demand, so now there's less demand in the near term. So we sort of need to wait until those PCs need to get upgraded before demand returns, and that can take longer and longer now that we're getting better technology and better PCs. But with Meta, for instance, you know, a lot of people are already on Facebook or Instagram or, or WhatsApp, so it's not necessarily even about increasing users. It's about increasing your time spent on these apps, which drives that web traffic and that ad revenue, which I personally don't think is too difficult since we're all on the internet all the time nowadays. Um, So I think that's basically a high-level difference between the two sectors. I most definitely am on the internet probably way too much uh, every day. Um, You know, before we get to some ETFs, if you think back, obviously the predecessor to today's communication services sector was the old uh, telecom sector. Do do you want to talk a little bit about that and and maybe the evolution here? Because today's communication services isn't, you know, your granddaddy's AT&T or or Verizon or, or whoever. It's evolved. Yeah, so, so before that, that 2018 reclassification, um, the sector was basically the telecom sector. So it had, it had those stocks like AT&T, Verizon, and those were, um, stable companies, high dividend pairs. Um, that industry was going through some consolidation. So first of all, there were fewer and fewer of these pure telecom companies. And then just the way we were communicating was changing. It wasn't just through telephone, and it definitely wasn't by landline anymore. Now things are more Internet-based and more social media-based. So even now, when we use our phones, we're not talking on them that much. We're not even texting that much, probably. We're probably on the Internet, or we're streaming videos, or we're on social media. So the communication services sector was created and media stocks and Internet stocks were added like Meta and Netflix, Disney, Warner Brothers. And a lot of those are are higher growth stocks. So now the sector holds companies that are not only a lot newer, but also more growthier, more tech adjacent companies. By the way, an interesting stat that some listeners may appreciate, probably a lot of them already know this, but I was looking this morning, communication services currently comprises about 8% of the S&P 500, that's compared to technology at about, what, 25, 26%, which uh, I, I think is interesting. Still pretty you know, heavy there on the technology side. Uh, but, Roxana, let's get into the ETF side of the equation. And if you look at the largest ETFs in this space, uh, you have products like XLC, which we mentioned. There's the Vanguard Communication Services ETF, ticker VOX, VOX. Uh, there's the Fidelity MSCI Communication Services Index ETF, FCOM, F-C-O-M. Uh, the iShares Global Com Services ETF, IXP. 
Those are the four largest, but XLC just dominates here, right? It has over $10 billion in assets, which is like triple the assets of the other three combined. But as you look under the hood of, let's just start with those four ETFs, what stands out to you? Like what should investors be thinking about if they want exposure to this space? Yeah, so when you look at those four ETFs, um, they're all market cap weighted. So you're going to have a lot of top-heavy exposure to the large-cap uh, communication companies. So with all of these, Meta is the top holding, um, followed by Alphabet, which is uh, Google's parent company. And that actually takes up uh, holding number two and holding number three, because basically Google has those two classes of stocks. So that's G-O-O-G and G-O-O-G-L. So together, these two companies um, have anywhere between one-third to almost half of the weight of these ETFs. And out of the four ETFs that you mentioned, by the way, um, three of those are domestic, and um, IXP is the only global one. So, you know, there's a there's a lot of uh, top-heavy exposure to just those two companies. So, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing, um, you know, especially in times like this when those two companies are doing well, the ETF will do well. But, you know, obviously it could be sort of a negative if you don't want some of that overexposure to certain stocks or if you already have a large allocation um, to Meta and Google somewhere else in your portfolio. And in that case, you know, there's also um, equal weighted sector ETFs like EWCO, which, you know, is, is pretty good, but actually has a lot less assets when you look at it compared to some of these bigger ones like XLC. Yeah, and EWCO, that's the Invesco S&P 500 Equal Weight Communication Services ETF. Um, look, you wrote a piece last week where you covered this entire space. And, and listeners, go check this out. It's at ETFtrends.com. Uh, it's titled, Let's Talk About Communication Services ETFs. But in that piece, Roxana, you made the point that communication services is one of the fastest changing sectors. And it, we, we sort of touched on that when you were talking about the evolution from the old telecom days. But this space is moving uh, rapidly. And so can you talk specifically about that in, in terms of moving forward and, and maybe what that means from an investment or ETF standpoint? Yeah, so I like to talk about this a lot on my work, by the way, about how things are changing sort of thematically across sectors. So, I mean, we definitely touched on the telecom um, portion earlier. You know, these companies were, were basically utility companies, and now they're tech-driven, social media-driven companies. Um, so a lot just happening in the telecom um, industry itself. But there's also a lot going on in other parts of the sector, which I think is really cool. Um, you know, you have social media companies like Meta, and, you know, those are relatively new, but even those are evolving because social media has changed over the past few years. It's not just liking or commenting or, or tweeting or whatever now. A lot of it is live streaming video or virtual metaverse-type interactions. And then you have these media companies, and they're also changing because they're not just putting out movies at the theater anymore or even just doing cable or satellite. Now, like, streaming and video on demand are big things, and, and you know, that, that can really take away a lot of that market share from, uh, from both movie theaters and cable and satellite. So, you know, I personally think that's a big growth opportunity there. And then if you look at this from an ETF perspective, you know, you can look at some of these ETFs like BNGE, and BNGE's very small ETF, but I think it's interesting because it does touch on some of those higher growth communication trends I mentioned, like the streaming video and streaming audio and gaming. And then there's also ESPO, um, which is a VanEck video gaming and esports ETF, um, which focuses on gaming. And this surprised me because typically, you know, a lot of these industry ETFs or thematic ETFs are pretty small, but ESPO actually has a 
$286 million in assets, which is more than IXP or EWCO. So this ETF is, is pretty cool because I think it includes some of those international gaming stocks that you wouldn't see in a domestic communications ETF, but are relatively well-known, like Nintendo and Capcom and Ubisoft. So anytime an ETF can fill space that's not typically in an investor portfolio, I think is pretty compelling. By the way, uh, BNGE, that's the First Trust S Network streaming and a gaming ETF. I love that ticker, Binge. That's a pretty good one. <laughs> um, hey, this is kind of out of uh, left field, but I, I don't know why it popped into my head. No pun intended. Any thoughts on the K-pop ETF, the Korean entertainment ETF that launched last year? Like, does that fit into this evolution at all or, or not really? Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it fits into the evolution. I think... Um, I think the ETF sort of, it's a fun idea because, you know, K-pop music, it's, it's obviously really popular globally. And so it makes sense that people would want to try to invest in that. Um, but I think it's only up around, um, maybe 6% this year. And you have EWY, which is the, the broader Korean ETF up about 11%. So, you know, it's not, it's not really outperforming right now, but could be useful for investors who want um, small cap exposure to Korea and they don't necessarily need any more Samsung or Hyundai or Kia in their portfolio. By the way, I think I saw last week somebody filed for a uh, global music industry ETF. So we'll see if that one can get some uh, traction. I think the K-pop has been a little slow, but um, Roxanna, always so much fun. You know, I cover a lot of macro on this podcast. I always like drilling down a little bit further and getting into the weeds on, on stuff like sectors. So uh, interesting stuff this week. Always enjoy chatting. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you. Of course. That was Roxana Islam, Associate Director of Research at Vetify. Is it time to amplify your income potential? Discover Amplify's high-quality and high-income ETFs designed to provide you monthly income. When income matters to you, explore Amplify ETFs. Get current monthly yields at AmplifyYields.com. There's no guarantee that distributions will be made. Investing risk includes principal loss. Visit Amplify ETFs to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully. Amplify ETFs are distributed by Foreside Fund Services, LLC. I'm now joined by Marcelo Sampeo, co-founder and CEO of Hashdex, who's a leader in crypto asset management. Uh, so they're actually behind several industry-first products, including the world's first crypto ETF, the uh, Hashdex NASDAQ Crypto Index ETF. They launched the world's first decentralized finance ETF, uh, the world's first ETF dedicated to smart contract blockchain assets. That's their Web3 ETF. And then here in the U.S., they're behind the world's first 1933 Act Bitcoin ETF, which we'll certainly get into. Uh, Marcelo's now on the line with me from Brazil. Uh, Marcelo, it's an absolute pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Likewise, Nathan. Thanks for inviting you, you know, Marcelo, anytime I visit with someone who has the uh, background and pedigree in crypto that you do, I'm always fascinated to hear how they first got involved in the space. And so I actually want to start there with you. 
How did you first become interested in crypto, and then how did that lead to the founding of Hashdex? Yeah, sure. So in my case, I got involved in 2011. So I'm a considered an old guy now for crypto. <laughs> and uh, but 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 in my case, it was really random, you know. Like and just like anybody else, you know, like when I discovered Bitcoin, it was the only thing around back then. I had all the doubts that everybody has, you know, like say, oh, this thing is not going to work because of this or because of that. But uh, eventually, like it happens with crypto, it clicks, right? And then you start like seeing crypto basically everywhere and you get this notion that crypto will basically um, uh, somehow like touch like every single industry. So that happened for me in 2013. And because of the way my investments were structured, uh, I decided to invest big for my size and like and, and, and I had to use regulated products that basically there were not. Uh, so that's why, like, uh, back then, 2013, like, when the first product uh, appeared, and it was the, the very, you know, like, grayscale product today, to be what became GBTC, like, I was one of the first investors. And, and basically, I was a, one of the first investors for all products worldwide that were launching. And I became somehow, like, uh, uh, with all the respect I have for all these players, they were pioneers, but I, I, was, I had big criticisms around, you know, like, the structure, the governance, like, the fees. Like, so hashtags was somewhat an answer to, to creating something that we believe that the product that we wanted to buy. So that's how we came along. Okay, so if I have my time frames correct, uh, hashtags was founded in 2018. And then in exactly. Tw- okay, and then in 2021, you brought the world's first crypto ETF to market. Again, that's the Hashdex NASDAQ Crypto Index ETF, which, by the way, trades on the uh, Bermuda Stock Exchange. Give us a little background on that. Like, like how did all that come together? Sure. So, so uh, exactly because I have, like, a, somewhat a deep understanding of the, of the market, of what the products that, uh, I, like, what we wanted to solve for products, ETFs were, you know, like, uh, were a must. They said, okay, that's the best way for us or for the market or financial markets, traditional financial markets, to invest in basically any sort of asset crypto included, right? So I said, what does it take to, to actually build this? And, and we found out that it was pretty complicated because regulations were not ready basically anywhere in the world uh, to welcome that uh, product like that, you know. And, but, but that became our life goal, you know, like at that moment. said, okay, guys, here's what we want to do. Let's figure out how do we do it. Uh, <clears throat> our approach is really not trying to change regulations, that takes too long, that is too hard, but it's really working with uh, the frameworks, the current frameworks, but getting a deep understanding and creating and presenting products to regulators saying, okay guys, this makes sense, we have this way using the current regulations to do it. So that's basically <clears throat> how we did it. So initially we used the, the country of Bermuda, um, you know, like the way, you know, like, uh, you know, like regulations were structured there, like we could definitely you know, like uh, uh, bring this to market. and. From then, you know, like we went to Brazil, uh, which is uh, my home country. You know, uh, there was a big market there. And you know, like, so we took this product. It became the second largest ETF in the Brazilian stock exchange. And from then, you know, like we went to uh, Europe, uh, U.S., and we keep going. Yeah, and again, as I noted at the top, you also launched the world's first decentralized finance ETF and a Web3 ETF. Yeah. Those are both listed on the uh, Brazilian stock exchange. Uh, let's talk about here in the U.S., uh, where in September of last year, you launched the first 1933 Act Bitcoin Futures ETF, ticker symbol DeFi. Love that ticker. Uh, this was also yeah. your, this was your first uh, SEC-registered ETF. Uh, this was done in partnership with Tukram Trading and Victory Capital Management. 
Uh, first, what made you decide to pursue, or pursue that product? Well, U.S. is the largest financial market in the planet. You know, like it's very natural that you know, like a product of this nature should be available there, right? So, so again, there is the first thing that happens. There is this desire to actually, you know, like bring high quality products, um, you know, like to the American market. So, uh, the Bitcoin ETF, at least the spot one, has been like long discussed, you know, like and, 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 and you know, like with some controversies, you know, like and so on. But, you know, like, uh, 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 we, like I mentioned before, like our business is really uh, to understand deeply regulations and to partner with people in the same, uh, the same way, you know, like uh, uh, understand, you know, like and, and, and seek for this, this really this profound knowledge of the rules and, and, and take from there and, and work probably bring viable, make viable products that can really, you know, like address or, or, or serve, you know, like uh, the investors in like the best possible way. So U.S. for us was literally this process of, of desiring bringing like a, 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 a crypto, high quality crypto uh, ETF to the market, but working with the current rules. Um, um, we, we found Tukran, you know, like uh, really like uh, the best partner we could, like they are specialists in 33 Act, right, uh, which by the way will be you know, like the definitive, you know, like, uh, uh, let's say, like structure for when spot is viable. And uh, and we were able to working together to to basically like bring uh, what is now defied, which is the most advanced product, you know, like at least currently in the market. And obviously, as you're well aware, there were existing 1940 Act Bitcoin futures ETFs yep. already on the market. Can you explain the primary differences between DeFi in those 1940 Act uh, ETFs, and we don't have to get too far into the weeds, but just high level, what would you state as the differences? Yeah, so so there are a number of differences, and, and by the way, I, I I cannot comment very specifically about the products because of the way regulations um, are in US now, sure. you know, like and our role in the product. But in general, you have like these two structures that they basically you know like regulate securities, you know, like an enterprise in US. And the 1940, um, which basically are all the previous uh, Bitcoin futures uh, ETFs that, that, that were available in the market in the U.S., uh, was literally, you know, like uh, um, uh, very ingenious, you know, like um, um, for lack of a better word, I'm going to say regulatory hack, you know, like that was used, like to bring to market a product that uh, using leverage, you know, like and, and, and structures, uh, offshore structures. Uh, was able to buy futures, you know, like and and have some sort of synthetic exposure to Bitcoin uh, that basically had nothing, you know, like available in the market, or not nothing at least, you know, like that that was uh, a real ETF. Uh, when it comes to 33 Act, uh, literally, you know, like when whenever we made uh, that that was made possible, you know, like this is as good as just having an ETF buying directly futures, no leverage, no offshore, no nothing. Uh, and, and this is so much cleaner, you know, like, and, and, and that you have uh, the impact, you know, you can see this, you know, like, uh, literally in, 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 in the performance itself, right? Because it's, it's so, so much more efficient, but still a futures product, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. and not only us, but and like a number of players in the market are, you know, like, uh, working their way, in, like, to bring the spot, the Bitcoin spot ETF, which is uh, what I assume everybody wants. Yeah, and on that note, so you mentioned the 1933 Act uh, structure would be the definitive structure, you know, if and when a, yeah. a spot product is viable. And 
My understanding, and, and this is from some recent quotes by your head of U.S. business, Bruno Sosa, uh, he, he made some comments to BlockWorks, is that if and when the SEC does finally get comfortable with, with a spot Bitcoin ETF here in the U.S., you could uh, simply switch DeFi from holding Bitcoin futures to holding actual Bitcoin. Do I have that correct? That, that's absolutely correct. And that's literally one of the, you know, like the, 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 the major you know, uh, aspects of it. So whenever spot is possible, so whenever the regulators, the SEC, is comfortable with spot, uh, basically, you know, like uh, there is a process associated to it, but basically, you know, like uh, our ETF needs just to change the underlying asset uh, from futures to spot, as opposed to all the other, you know, like ETFs who have to convert or to actually you know, like undergo to new filings, right? So this product has an advantage at this point in time to whenever you know, like the time is right to actually hit the market first. By the way, in terms of when the uh, the time might be right for a, a spot Bitcoin ETF, in my opinion, uh, Marcelo, you've sort of helped bolster Grayscale's case against the SEC, right? In that the SEC allowed <laughs> DeFi to come to market, which that was a big deal because the SEC had previously said the, uh, the 33 Act structure didn't offer uh, enough investor protections when it came to Bitcoin or, or whatever the logic there was. It, any quick thoughts or comments on that situation, the Grayscale lawsuit, <laughs> or your role here? <laughs> well, look, I, again, we, we respect tremendously Grayscale. Like, uh, um, there was the other day, you know, like, uh, some news, like a headline, but uh, maybe, like, from a two-hour like, conversation that captured this, this, this sentence the, of me saying, like, uh, we don't sue regulators. We work with them, you know, like, <laughs> which is true, right? But, but again, I'm not trying to peek at grayscale. Like we admire what they've done in the past. But, but the truth is, um, 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 if we come to, when it comes to common sense, you know, like this, the, the Bitcoin spot product you know, has been long waited in the market. And, and I think it's, it, it's fair to say that uh, for some people, you know, like they would think that it's even maybe too, you know, like far late, you know, like to come to market. Uh, but, but the thing is, you know, like the way regulation works is really not uh, around common sense many times, really around what is allowed, what is possible, right? And, um, and, and the truth is, like, um, we tell crew, like, we found a way to make this possible, right? Uh, as opposed to, again, to fight the regulator and say the rules are wrong, you know, like, again, that's very possible, that's viable. You see Grayscale doing that, you know, like, um, that's fair. Uh, they, they have all the right to do it. But, again, that's costly. That takes time, stress. And uh, and our approach is really, you know, like going, you know, like to working with regulators and trying to understand what is possible with the rules, you know, like and, and then, you know, like uh, bring to market the product, the product that people want, you know, like and that makes sense, right? So, but, yeah, you know, like I think like it, it added up, you know, like a little bit of, of, of you know, like at least new elements, you know, like to the discussion, right? Well, I'm not going to get on my uh, spot Bitcoin ETF soapbox today. Uh, listeners have heard my spiel on that many times. I'm not going to make them suffer again this week. But but I do want to <laughs> ask you, um, you, you know, look, given that your firm has worked on crypto ETFs in other parts of the world, how, how do you view the U.S.'s regulatory approach to crypto? I mean, again, if you look at, say, the SEC's unwillingness to approve a spot Bitcoin ETF or really just – at least in my opinion, the lack of any crypto regulatory framework at all. Uh, do, do you have any strong views on how the U.S. is approaching crypto regulation, maybe in comparison to other parts of the world? 
Well, yeah. Well, you know, like, I don't want to sound controversial, but the thing is, you know, like, U.S., uh, that's very unusual for U.S., mm-hmm. right? Imagine if this, you know, like, the way it's been approached now was the approach used for the Internet back in the day, right? I mean, how, how, what would have been the cost for, you know, like, U.S. GDP, right? And, and this is just one example, because when you go to, you know, like, I, I can go in history, like, as far as, you know, like, electricity, you know, like, uh, um, cars and so on, right? So... Every new technology, you know, like the disrupted markets and, and really, you know, like, create, create great innovation, you know, like, uh, uh, um, had their, you know, like, uh, 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 big regulatory or, or big discuss society discussed that, you know, like, and, and, and regulation had to evolve. In my opinion, and that's just my opinion, you know, like, U.S., it's, it's taken probably too long to actually respond to that. Not in, in, in a in, in a way to 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 prohibit you know like or to to try to forbid or, or to or to not let this this innovation to 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 evolve, but but really you know like in the, in the idea of of so much shutting down like the conversation um, for mostly a political aspect. But again, you know like crypto is so new, you know like and and. And over time, I sense that this thing's going to fall into the right place. Uh, but it's just you know, like taking its time, which you know, like um, um, it, it's about like so, somewhat too long, you know, like or, or, or at least long, you know, like um, like we're used to see U.S. generally react to to innovation, right? Any thoughts as to why it's taking so long? I mean, does this just come down to basic politics where we yeah. can't get people to uh, agree on what a regulatory framework should look like, or do you think there's more to it? Yeah. So, so crypto is complex, right? And not only the technology, but the effect that that will have uh, in society, right? Uh, whenever you, you you dig in, right? Like I said, at some point it clicks, and just like any other, you know, like technology, you know, like or disruptive technology, uh, will bring amazing things, but will bring new problems too. Uh, my sense is that uh, a number of the people who have the power to decide around the, the very topic of crypto, um, they have not gone through this process or this deep dive. And they're basically using what they know to, to, to decide about what they don't know. Uh, it kind of reminds me of, you know, like the classic physicist uh, in the 60s, you know, like talking about, you know, like quantum mechanics, right? You kind of needed a whole new mathematics in order to understand that, you know, like and to think about it. So they use just to dismiss right away. Like, no, no, this is like, this is no good or this is, this is, you know, like not a, is that pseudoscience or whatever. So it's like, you know, like it's how like a, a few, but uh, again, time will kind of fix this, uh, hopefully. And, um, and, and, and even in U.S., you have now in like a growing number of, of politics, of politicians, you know, like that actually understand, they get it and, and they doing the work to educate their peers. No, it's a great point. I mean, I think you're right. I think that just overall, there's still a real lack of education around crypto. And you're right. It it is complex. It's not the easiest thing in the world to get your head around. I've been, you know, studying the space for quite a while now, not as long as you have, but uh, it's it's tough. You know, I like to fancy myself as at least fairly intelligent. And you have to do a lot of uh, a lot of learning here to to understand everything. So yeah. I, I think you're right. I think that's part of the uh, issue. Uh, Marcelo, just a few minutes left. L- let's close by talking crypto markets overall. 
And if you look at Bitcoin, uh, for example, that's up, what, nearly 80% year to date. Now, that's after being down 65% last year, but uh, doing very well this year. Certainly other crypto assets have also performed well. Just give us a few quick thoughts on the current crypto markets and maybe more importantly, why you think crypto is something investors might want to consider as part of a a well-diversified portfolio. Yeah. So uh, uh, first, you know, like Bitcoin is different than other crypto assets, right? So that's something important to understand, right? So Bitcoin tried to solve something that, for instance, Ethereum does not try to solve. You know, like it's a completely different thing. It's like comparing Apple to ExxonMobil, right? So it's a completely different company, completely different problem they're trying to solve, and so on. Uh, when it comes to Bitcoin specifically, uh, what uh, and and you know, like uh, that that would be true for for all crypto assets. My sense is this: you know, like this year started uh, with the market, you know, like more in consensus around macro, right? So we went through a mayhem last year, like, and when that happens, you know, like everything correlates, right? So um, uh, basically all asset classes, but, you know, like cash, you know, like they were going to the same direction. Gold didn't serve as a sort of value, for instance, you know, like, but the, the, the start of this year, you know, it's like saying, you know, like uh, the market got somewhat in consensus around macro, and it kind of released the asset class to just follow their journey, right? So that happened with crypto. And when it came to, to Bitcoin specifically, um, I think, you know, like there is, you know, like a, a view in the market that is very worried about, you know, uh, all this money printing or, you know, like everything that is happening uh, or the fragility of, of economy in general in the world, especially in U.S., Right. So so Bitcoin, like is a potential hedge for all those things, like uh, has been used you know, like at least for the, the, the last month, somewhat like realizing it's you know, like or 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 walking its stock. Right. So so that, that, that has been at least the thesis that a number of investors have been using um, in terms of more general crypto as an investing. You know, like uh, our belief is as simple as this, you know, like there is a growing possibility or you know like a case and getting stronger by the day that crypto will ha- will be will have a relevant play in the future crypto in general crypto is a structure <clears throat> bitcoin for store of value you know like let's say that maybe ethereum has the the new internet or new web or you know like uh, the platform for all these decentralized applications and a number of other blockchains solving other problems problems right so there is a growing idea or uh, you know, like a, a stronger a case get it stronger. The crypto will have a play a place in the future. So you have very few opportunities like this in the history of investing. You think that you can just allocate a very little portion of your portfolio in something that can return a lot. And if you're wrong, you're gonna lose very little, right? So asymmetric return. So my sense is that uh, people are realizing that, and um, and and they were more and more welcoming crypto into their portfolios and there is a good chance that that's going to be a great investment. But time will tell. Well, Marcelo, with that, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, excellent insight this week. Really enjoyed uh, connecting. Best of luck on everything that you're building right now. I'll certainly be uh, continuing to watch. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Nathan. That was Marcelo Sampeo, co-founder and CEO of Hashdex. The U.S. Benchmark Series is a set of 10 ETFs that make it easier for advisors and investors to access the U.S. Treasury market. The U.S. Benchmark Series ETFs offers investors the following advantages over directly purchasing U.S. Treasury securities. 
Simplified access to 10 separate U.S. Treasury securities covering distinct points along the yield curve from three months to 30 years. Monthly dividends providing a more frequent and regular interest payment than holding the underlying securities. Automatic rolls that provide constant benchmark exposure without hassle or added expense. And at $50 per share, the ability to transact in fractions of traditional bond sizing. The U.S. Benchmark Series ETFs also provide enhanced tax efficiency, intraday liquidity, and the ability to take short positions and utilize options to express specific views on U.S. rates. U.S. Benchmark Series Treasury ETFs make it easy, cheap, and tax efficient to own and roll treasuries for clients. Joined by Christian Magoon, founder and CEO of Amplify ETFs, who currently offers 15 ETFs approaching $4.5 billion in assets. I think some people are sleeping on Amplify. They just continue quietly moving up the ETF leaderboard. And Christian is now on the line with me from Colorado. Christian, it's uh, been a little while. Great having you back on the podcast. Hey, Nate, it's great to be on. Thanks for having me and look forward to our conversation. You you know, it is amazing. Uh, I I mean, I do think some people might be surprised to learn that you're now in the top 20% of all ETF issuers based on assets. I show you're in the top 15% in terms of inflows this year, uh, something like $350 million into your ETF so far in uh, 2023. Just talk a little bit about your journey. I, I remember having you on the podcast when you were first starting out with Amplify, which, uh, what, what was that, 2016? Yeah, that's right, 2016, kind of April of 2016, we launched our first product, the infamous iBuy, the first online retail ETF that you know has kind of racked up a lot of recognition for uh, its uh, kind of pioneering, uh, re, uh, the new uh, kind of uh, ecosystem in retail, had a few ETF of the year thematic ETF of the year nominations. We also launched in 2016 um, an income product, uh, Devo, which is now our largest uh, ETF today. And um, yeah, I remember when we launched, we are maybe the 115th, the, the last ranked ETF sponsor in terms of AUM. And you know, today, well over 200 ETF uh, sponsor firms out there. And we've been fortunate enough to uh, bring some, I believe, additive products to the ecosystem that have, you know, received recognition. I think we've had, uh, you know, three ETF of the year finalist products and several others that, you know, have won in certain categories, uh, multi-asset income or um, some other uh, kind of unique areas. And, um, you know, we just continue to roll and um, hopefully, you know, provide value to investors and have a diversified product line. I think maybe that's the biggest lesson that, take away from you know prior experience to from amplify is to make sure we're offering not only maybe door opening kind of unique uh thematic etfs but also solid income etfs and some uh core products that are uh, additive to investors portfolio so been a fun journey and look forward to continuing it here in 2023 you mentioned uh devo and i don't think there's any question the biggest driver of your growth has been the amplify cwp enhanced dividend income etf which which you mentioned some of the awards that's actually a finalist for etf.com's etf of the year in 2022 which i briefly touched on those awards uh, last week but this etf in just over the past 2 years 
it's gone from less than four hundred million in assets to now it's knocking on the door of three billion dollars. It's a, a five star Morningstar rated fund. Um, I, I guess first explain this ETF strategy. I know it's actively managed, and then I'm curious to hear why do you think it's resonating so strongly with investors? Yeah, so you know, Devo uh, began and you know had a really quiet first three years of its existence. It's blue chip stocks that are actively managed by Capital Wealth Planning, the portfolio management team of Kevin Simpson and Josh Smith out of Naples, Florida and uh, really followed their SMA strategy, enhanced dividend income uh, plan uh, that had been quite successful in SMA format. We brought it to the ETF format. In the first three years, it was quiet in terms of AUM gathering, simply because growth stocks were doing so well. Then the market environment shifted where high-quality stocks with maybe a value tilt um, started to really resonate. Uh, You know, the unique part about this portfolio, besides being actively managed, is that the uh, portfolio managers tactically write covered calls on the individual stocks. So uh, these are you know, blue-chip dividend-yielding stocks, so you have one engine of income from dividends, and the second is really portfolio manager-driven by writing these covered calls. And lo and behold, um, this became just a really exciting strategy um, in the last few years uh, relative to its exposure and then its you know income generation. So... Um, you know, the, I think what's resonated with investors is that, you know, produced above average income around 5% in terms of yield that get, got paid out on an annualized basis. Of course, each month the distributions come out. But portfolio managers didn't forget uh, that total return is important. So uh, despite being kind of one of these option income products, you know, uh, Devo's had a, a really appealing total return, a three-year annualized total return of 18%. Five-year annualized total return of 11%, five-star rated, um, you know, top 10% in its peer group from a Morningstar standpoint. So I think the combination of high-quality uh, stocks, uh, material income, and then double-digit returns really made it stand out. You know, there's a variety of option income ETFs that may yield 11 or 12%, but you look at their, you know, three- or five-year total returns and their single digits – so I think that's what really kind of propelled Devo to the forefront and uh, seems you know continue to be well-positioned here in 2023. I know in the uh, fall of last year, you ended up launching an international version of the strategy, the Amplify International Enhanced Dividend Income ETF, ticker iDevo. Um, anything at all you would highlight uh, there? Does this cover both developed and emerging markets, by the way? Uh, yes. Okay. So uh, it's just an ex-U.S. version of, of Devo. So you get you know a little bit higher yield because of international stocks yielding a little bit more. There's a little bit more volatility there. But as you know, international stocks you know have some very attractive P.E. characteristics relative, relative to uh, U.S. companies. Certainly you get a diversification benefit and, you know, potentially some, some uh, you know, help from uh, the currency uh, situation between the dollar and the rest of the world. So we thought it was a great addition to the suite, and we know more advisors are looking internationally due to some of the reasons we just cited. So, yeah, iDevo has uh, done well, and actually, year-to-date, it's tripled the performance of, of Devo um, simply because of having that international exposure, and there's been a little bit more activity there in terms of capital appreciation. So if you like iDevo and you're thinking about getting your toe in the water on the international side, but you want to get paid you know, a decent amount of income, I think it's 6% roughly 
distribution rate, iDevo is a great complement that doesn't overlap with Devo's holdings uh, one bit. So another extension to our product line that we think is pretty timely. Christian, do you have any strong views on international stocks in uh, general? You know, it's interesting. If you look at equity ETF inflows this year, it's basically all international. Uh, U.S. equity ETFs have hardly any inflows at all. Well, something like $30 billion has gone into international ETFs. Now, I've said previously, uh, I do think it's a combination of three factors, two of which really you, you just touched on. I mean, I think, number one, the recent outperformance of international is catching the attention of investors because we all know it's been tough sledding for international over the past you know, decade plus. But international stocks are finally showing some real outperformance. So I think that's helping. And then I also think some investors may be betting on a Fed pivot, which theoretically, to your point, that could pressure the U.S. dollar, which tends to bode well for international stocks. And then, of course, you mentioned valuations. Relative valuations do look more attractive. But um, any thoughts on just the overall outlook for international stocks? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a case to be made, as you just just mentioned, for you know, potential rotation to international starting to outperform over a longer period of time, um, you know, domestic stocks and, you know, certainly the uh, margin of safety, if you will, from a lower PE standpoint, really looks attractive on the international side. And, you know, given kind of the volatility we've seen in the last uh, several years in uh, U.S. markets and, you know, some of the pricing concerns uh, relative to whether it's inflation or interest rates or maybe just adjustments of PE ratios, I think that kind of margin of safety that international offers, I think, just as attractive. So, um, yeah, we think that's a great area to have some increased allocation to. And, you know, it's funny, many advisors we sp- we've spoken with over the last, you know, six to eight months, as we've talked about international more and more, have been saying, you know what, maybe I shouldn't just own international via my U.S. stocks that have business um, revenue from international. Maybe I need to own some actual international stocks. So I think there's a little bit of a reevaluation of uh, underlying asset allocation, not unlike that has happened in the U.S. and looking at kind of growth exposure versus value exposure. So, uh, yeah, we think this is definitely an area you want to have exposure to, and hopefully you'll be rewarded and potentially, you know, gather a margin of, of safety there due to kind of some attractive valuation differences. All right, Christian, with our remaining time, I want to switch gears. And uh, this won't surprise you in the least. I want to talk crypto ETFs uh, (laughs) because you do offer the most popular crypto equity ETF, the Amplify Transformational Data Sharing ETF, ticker BLOK Block. And look, if, if you look at crypto equity ETFs overall, they're absolutely dominating the performance leaderboard this year. I know BLOK itself is up close to forty uh, percent, at least when I checked this morning. Yes. Now, my guess is because of that, more investors are going to start looking at this space. And so, my question to you is, how would you compare BLOK to some of the other crypto equity ETFs on the market? Because I, I know if you look at performance, some of those are up, you know, fairly substantially more this year than BLOK. So, what should investors be thinking about as they may look for exposure here. Yeah, so we've, you know, been out in the market with Block um, since the beginning. We were really the first, you know, crypto blockchain ETF along with BLCN to launch in uh, 2018. So we've seen several <laughs> uh, cycles in, in, in Bitcoin and digital asset prices and survived. And I think, you know, the big lesson that I would, um, I guess, impart to investors as this is cyclical 
and a lot of times the volatility involved in investing in digital assets or crypto or blockchain equity uh, ETFs shakes people out at the wrong time. So, you know, traditionally a lot of the flows come in as after we have a big performance run and then there's maybe a correction or the cycle changes a little bit and many people kind of get uh, taken out, if you will, due to the volatility on the other side. So I think first, if you're looking at the space, you need to think of it as number number one, you know, a smaller percentage of your uh, portfolio assets. Number two, think of it as a long-term buy and hold through multiple cycles. So maybe that's more like a three to five year outlook. Um, and, and, and I think third, you want to have kind of a risk-managed approach when you're looking at these uh, products. And I think that's really where Block stands out, being one of the uh, few actively managed products. You know, we have a team at Troso Investments led by Mike Venuto and Dan Weisskopf that are adjusting the portfolio uh, in the midst of these different um, kind of risk-on, risk-off environments that happen to digital assets, which seemingly uh, occur weekly, sometimes monthly, um, and you know, having that risk-managed approach really allows investors to kind of see lower volatility, I think, in uh, their equity uh, investment in this kind of blockchain crypto uh, space. The other thing I would note is that Block is a blockchain equity-focused ETF. Now, that includes crypto, but it's not limited to crypto. So portfolio managers have an ability to kind of increase the beta and own more crypto stocks during a positive you know, crypto market. Likewise, they can lower the beta and get into more blockchain stocks, the IBMs, the Accentures of the world during uh, tougher markets for crypto. Um, you know, despite all the ups and downs in you know the crypto space, blocks average uh, three three year annualized uh, return is thirteen percent a year over the last three years. Not a bad return for kind of what's happened, considering we've been as high as you know, $69,000 in Bitcoin and, you know, as low as you know, the 15. So I really think, you know, investors should think about being active, make sure their allocation of their portfolio isn't outsized so that they're not overly nervous about price movements, and then look for something that provides them kind of a, a smoother ride so that they don't uh, get out at the bottom. Because this, we believe this space definitely has some major growth prospects, but the volatility can be really sizable in, in short periods of time. Yeah, I just think due diligence is so critical in this space. And, of course, it's always critical in, in any ETF category. But you mentioned being so early here with Block. And subsequent to that, we saw just a ton of other ETFs enter the market. And so going back to the performance this year, look, we know when, when you see performance like we are in the crypto equity ETF space, investors are going to take a second look there. And I just think it's really important that investors go through the lineup and, you know, your point, whether you want active versus index based or you're looking for a smoother ride versus something with, you know, more volatility. You have to look at those things because there are some pretty major differences among the, uh, you know, what I'm going to largely call the crypto equity ETFs or blockchain ETFs on the market. But, um, Christian, always so great having you on the podcast. Uh, You know, I love seeing all the success over at uh, Amplify. Congratulations on that. And thank you for joining me. Hey, thanks a lot, Nate. Appreciate it. That was Christian Magoon, founder and CEO of Amplify ETFs. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Amplify ETFs. If you would like to learn more about Amplify ETFs, you can visit AmplifyETFs.com. 
Next week, I'll be joined by Scott Ladner, CIO of Horizon Investments. He's going to discuss ETF model portfolio construction. They have a uh, unique approach, so we'll get into that. And then John C. Impaglia, CEO of Sprott Asset Management, will discuss several of their recently launched miners ETFs, including the first ever nickel miners ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.